Hey everybody, Michael here. A quick note of apology going into this episode. Uh, midway through the recording, Andrew's mic sort of glitched up and started making some weird popping noises that we didn't actually realize were there until after we finished recording and started editing. So it's sort of too late to delay getting the episode out by completely re-recording it. And also, the content turned out really well. Uh, so I hope that you will bear with a few moments of technical glitches and you will be rewarded with some very valuable content. Uh, so when you get to that part, there's nothing wrong with your headphones. It's our fault, and I'm really sorry. Uh, we have given Andrew's microphone a stern scolding and have been assured that it will not happen again. For the Craft Podcast, I'm Michael Rogg. This is episode nine, all about performance. The Craft Podcast serves the community of developers, designers, business people, content creators, and everyone else who uses the Craft Content Management System to build awesome products and experiences on the web. With this podcast, we aim to quite literally give a voice to the Craft CMS community to bring you relevant news, answer your questions, and help develop your skills, and to celebrate all of the awesome things you're building with Craft in your tool belt. Joining me again, fresh off his uh, appearance on our last episode about SEO, is once again Andrew Welch. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Michael. Good to be here. Andrew is a 15-year veteran of the web industry, and after running a software company for a bit, he is now immersed in doing consulting, especially around web technology, to help businesses uh, build web. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Leave that in. Uh, Andrew has is a oh gosh, it's good. Um, I'll, I'll I'll take it from here. First of all, let me help you out. I've actually been in the tech business since I was fifteen. It's not that I've been doing it fifteen years. I'm, oh. I'm much older than that, unfortunately. Oh. But no, I actually had a company and was selling stuff on the internet before people knew what the internet was, like a very long time ago. Anyway, I, I think we should keep that intro as is. It's perfect. It suits me well. So how are you doing, Michael? Right. I'm doing very well. So you have uh, stirred up quite a bit of buzz in the Craft CMS world lately with a performance revamp on the craftcms.com homepage. Brandon, the CEO of Pixel and Tonic, tweeted out uh, a before and after of the Google page speed ranking for one example of of the Craft CMS homepage before and after you got a hold of it. And so this, of course, inspired us to want to talk more about performance on the podcast to kind of uh, talk about why performance matters uh, in the first place. What are some kind of best practices and especially some some low-hanging fruit techniques and actionable things that we can start doing right away on all of our projects. And uh, since this is the Craft Podcast, we'll get to look at your work with the Pixel and Tonic team on the Craft website for some examples of the concepts that we're going to talk about. So I'm excited about this conversation. Real quick, how did you come to be involved with the craft website to do performance work in the first place? Uh, I mean, the long and the short of it is by harassing the crap out of Brad, uh, Brad Bell. It's one of the things that I do. I use a number of performance tools, performance testing tools in uh, every job that I create. And I think Brad was just kind of sick of me telling him how much their <laughs> their website could be improved. And if you bug him enough, he finally just said, all right, fine, go ahead. You think you can do better? Go ahead. And that, so you didn't even have to bribe him with whiskey. Well, I mean, I'm not going to say whether there was or was not any libations involved. It's really not. The, <laughs> <laughs> it's really not the place to discuss these things. But in any event, yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, I think Craft is a cutting edge CMS, or I, I wouldn't be using it. And I think it makes sense for a cutting edge CMS to also have a cutting edge website. And there is, you know, a little bit of a division. They're mostly back end guys. They care about as they should, how everything performs on the back end and building the back end tools. But I think it's also important for them to have a website that performs really well in a lead by example kind of situation. 
And also so that they can understand how front-end developers uh, are building modern websites with, with really good performance characteristics, because that will also help them build the tools that we use to build our websites. So, yeah, we did a, a number of things with their website. Like you said, we got their PageSpeed Insight up from 78 to 97, which is about as good as you can get uh, unless you decide to ditch Google Analytics. And the the fun thing is that I've had a number of people tell me that they just notice in browsing the site that it's uh, significantly faster. And I think that kind of gets back to a really important question is, why does it matter? You know, why do we care whether our website is optimized and loads fast? And I think there are a number of reasons that are pretty important. The first thing I would just say is we are all professionals who take our job seriously, and it makes sense to try to turn out product that makes the world better uh, and makes the, the browsing experience that people are going to have on the websites that we create uh, a positive one. And there are a ton of studies out there that show that a very, very important factor in the experience that people have on a website is how well it performs. So I think it's, it's super important from that point of view. And if you're building a website that does mm-hmm. commerce, all the more reason. There are, again, a ton of studies that correlate conversion rates on sales to how fast the site is actually going. And I'll just I'll cite one really quick, which I think is kind of interesting. Google did a study where they asked a whole number of users, uh, you know, how many results would they like on a page? Do they want 10 or do they want 30? Uh, and hands down, everyone voted that they wanted 30 results to, to come in there. Google rolled out the changes and they tested for speed and they tested their performance after doing this, and they saw that the traffic had, had dropped 20% on pages that had 30 results on them. And the difference in speed was half a second. And that's how much of an impact that it made on people saying, you know, screw this, I'm going to go somewhere else. And again, there are any number of studies that you can Google to take a look at conversion rates and, and bounce rates and all that kind of stuff. But that's a super, super uh, important reason to have an optimized website. You want to keep people on your website, whether it is a, a website as a service, so you want pe- to people to continue to use it and to not get annoyed with it, or if they're planning to buy something, you know, you don't want them to navigate away and just buy, buy it somewhere else because your web page is, is taking forever to, to load. And you also just don't yeah, want... Yeah, people are, people are not incredibly patient. No. Um, I think it's, it's actually a testament to, you know, a lot of progress, uh, in our industry that that the expectation that things should be available quickly on the internet is really making a huge difference in the way people behave as they interact with with our websites and apps i uh, there's another study where walmart saw multiple percentage points increase in conversion for every second of improvement in page load times in in across their commerce site and not all of us are, are doing many millions of dollars a day through our e-commerce websites. But, you know, a percentage point is a percentage point, no matter what business you're in. And, and that kind of stuff can make a big difference. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the other interesting thing, and this is probably due to technology, but long-term studies have been showing that attention spans have been declining. So the average person these days has a much shorter attention span than even 10 years ago. Uh, which is a remarkably short time for things like that to change. But, you know, it's a testament to technology and and how it's moving on. Some other reasons why I think that website performance is important is that Google, one of the many factors that they factor into their search engine results page is how well does your website perform. In fact, if you go into your Google Analytics, you'll actually see a tab on PageSpeed, and you can analyze it and take a look at it. They are tracking that for a reason, so it makes sense that we should care about it too. And again, even if it's a small difference, if our website is slightly slower than a competitor that scores equally well, they get listed first. And guess what links people tend to click on first? The ones that are at the top. And another point that I think is pretty important that a lot of people gloss over is that a well-performing website is a definite selling point to your clients. When you are able to show them that, you know, here are your five other major competitors, the website that we did for you performs significantly better than all of them, that's something that really resonates with them. And I've, I've had any number of clients that I've worked with 
you know, they may not understand web technology. They, they may not understand all the nuts and bolts that are going on uh, below the surface. But they definitely do understand a rating from a big company like Google that says their site is really good and their competitor site is not so good. And I think that that is something that can influence your ability to get future jobs and also to demand more as an hourly for the jobs that you work on because you are not just delivering to them this glossy thing that they look at, you are showing them the kind of quality job that you did under the hood. Yeah, I think uh, in my experience, that sort of thing has been very important uh, for establishing trust um, between my clients and me. You know, and a lot of times... You know, we have we have to be careful not to to shoot for a high score in some testing metric just so that we have a high score mm-hmm. to to boast about. But showing showing my clients how these metrics do translate into business KPIs, into increased conversions, into increased sales, into better uh, better bounce rates, and and things like this, that gives me leverage as a professional to in the future make other strategic suggestions and have the technical merits of things be taken much more seriously. No, yeah, absolutely. And I I fully agree with you that we're not trying to just do well on a test, right? The reason why we do these things is that thousands and thousands of very smart people have worked really hard at uh, creating these various metrics. And they've determined that these things that we can do actually do make a qualitative difference in the speed of our websites and how they perform. And I think, uh, you know, even going a step further with what you mentioned, I think that psychologically, when you can show your client their website score compared to their competitors, I think it makes a huge difference because a lot of these execs, the people that are signing the paychecks, I mean, they're there because they have a strong competitive drive and they want to perform well and they want to perform better than their competition. So I think it's a great sales tool as well as just being the best practices and and delivering a really quality product. So let's get right into it. What are the places where we need to be optimizing our websites and how do we test to see if we are doing a good job? Yep. So there are three main places. The first place is in your templates. It's whatever you're writing. And this is something that we're not going to (laughs) cover. But that is an area where you can have speed issues. You know, you have to make sure that the templates that you're writing are reasonably optimized. The second place that we have to look at performance optimization is on the server side. Is the the CMS and the server rendering and delivering the website quickly, squirting it out onto the wire with a relative alacrity? And then the third place is the in-browser rendering of the website. Once it is delivered, to the person's device or computer or whatever, how quickly does it actually render for them? And those are three really distinct places that you need to look at when you start talking about optimizing. Uh, so we optimize in the templates, yep. optimize on the server, and optimize in the browser. And it's worth noting that the reason that we can't really cover optimization in our templates in the span of of one podcast episode is because it is a topic that is very closely tied to the specific information architecture of your project and how you architect your templates. And so there are are a lot of great resources in the Craft Stack Exchange, in the Craft Documentation, and, and in other places talking about things like template caching and lazy loading of elements and element criteria models and, and stuff like that. And so what we want to do is focus more on the low-hanging fruit server optimizations and browser optimizations that apply very broadly to just about any project that you touch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the way that we attack this, first of all, is we get some good metrics. What we need to do is test the website as it is now and get a look at what the performance characteristics are and how we can make things better. The important thing to understand about any test is you have to know what it's testing. So I use a number of different sites when I'm testing anything. The first one that I use is Google PageSpeed Insights, and that's a pretty famous place that you can go and enter your website and take a look at the performance characteristics of it. The important thing to note about Google PageSpeed Insights is that it primarily measures in-browser rendering. In other words, 
what is the performance characteristics of the website as delivered to the end user's device and rendered. The next test suite that I use is a website called gtmetrics.com and this actually runs a number of different tests but it primarily is measuring server-side stuff. Things that maybe are not quite optimal on the server side that you can make better. Um, and I also use tools.pingdom.com and all these will be in the notes guys so you can either google them or check out the show <coughs> check out the show notes and you'll be fine. But that's another tool that measures primarily uh, server performance. And finally I also use uh, webpagetest.org and that again focuses primarily on the server side but it also does a really good job reporting on how compressed your resources are and uh, whether you're using a CDN and, and that type of thing. And I think it's important to use a full suite of tests to get a really broad view of what the performance characteristics of your website is and also to record those before you start doing optimization so that you can track your progress and also equally as important be able to show your client before and after the optimization work has been done. Show them the results of the work that you have put in. All right, so we've run our website through the full battery of tests. Yep. We've got good good stats for how we're performing before we touch any of this stuff. So how then do we move forward? What are sort of the overarching goals that we need to hit? So I think the easiest way to proceed is to take care of the server-side stuff first. Now, I realize that a lot of the people in the craft community, or at least some of them, may be more designers, you know, UX engineers, uh, front-end developers, and maybe the idea of messing with their server kind of scares them. And that's fine. I mean, you can hire someone that can take care of this for you, but there's plenty that, that can be done to make your website perform well from the, the server-side point of view. Simple things like make sure that gzip encoding is on. And what that means is that the resources that the web server delivers, it compresses them before it sends them out on the wire. Uh, and then on the client side, they get decompressed. And that's especially important when it comes to mobile browsing because obviously the bandwidth is less and the latency is higher uh, for mobile devices. And I would say that, you know, especially for people that are, aren't, you know, super Unix nerds, a really good resource to look at is the HTML5 boilerplate templates. They have configurations for both Apache and Nginx that take care of a lot of the best practices that you would want on your server. Uh, now, if you have shared hosting, you might have to contact your host and ask them to include these configuration files, but they can make a big difference. Some of the other things that, uh, that the, this will do for you is setting a far future expiration date for static resources. So what that means is, let's say you're serving up some Java, uh, JavaScript or images, the web browser on the client side can cache that. And as long as those don't change, it can cache those for a very long time. And it no longer even has to go out on the internet to grab those resources and render them again. And that's a really effective way to make the customer's experience faster because it doesn't have to reload all of this stuff from your server all the time. And going right. So what you're saying is, is if I have a style sheet, that style sheet probably changes fairly often as I develop my site. Mm -hmm. So the browser, I want the browser to check more frequently to see if there are changes in that file. But we're pretty safe in presuming that an image isn't going to change once it's published. And so we can tell the browser that it can afford to check much less frequently to see if that file has been updated. Yeah, all of that is true. Um, but what we actually do is set a very far in the future, you know, when I say far, I mean like a month expiration date, even for things like the CSS. And what we do is something called file name cache busting, which is just that we append a, a version number essentially to the name of the file. So it would be site CSS dot 12 dot CSS or, or something like that so that we have control over when a, a new file needs to be delivered. When we make a bunch of changes, develop and test it in, in development, push it to production, we can tell the world, hey, there's a new file here. You need to come grab it. Um, and that's really the way we want to do it is assume that a lot of these static resources have the browser cache them for at least a month 
and we will tell you uh, if the if a new asset is needed is really the, the so paradigm. rather than rather than trying to predict how often a thing is likely to change based on what type of resource it is you're saying a better solution is just to assume that once we publish a resource it is not going to change and the browser can cache it for a very long time and if it does change then it is going to change its file name as well right which then breaks the cache and then they get the new copy um, and it's really it's the optimal way to do it because it lets the the client browser cache as much as possible because whenever you can avoid those over the wire trips you're you're saving an awful lot of time and going along with that is the idea of using a CDN uh, CDN is a content delivery network and it has a number of benefits one of them is that it's a good CDN is proximity based so if you're down in Texas and you go to my website, it's going to find a server near you to deliver the images, JavaScript, and other static resources so that the latency is a lot lower uh, and your browsing experience is going to be a lot better. And that lets us keep the things that do change a lot, like the content and the templates, those still come from our server, but the things that don't tend to change will come from servers that are located worldwide near the person who's actually requesting it. And, you know, it may sound like the type of thing that is only for huge companies. And, you know, maybe uh, 10 years ago, even five years ago, that was probably the case. But these days you can get an account on Mac CDN or Cloudfire or any, any number of other services for as little as $9 a month, which is not much when you're talking mm -hmm. about trying to sell it to your clients. And it can make a qualitative difference in especially how people in other areas of the world load your website. And the, the added benefit of that too is that the static assets are then coming from what's called a cookie-free domain. So everyone knows what cookies are, these little bits of information, but what a lot of people don't know is that cookies are attached to every HTTP request that goes out there. So if you've got 50 images that are on your site, well, each request for those images, the cookies are going to be piggybacked on them. And there's really no reason for them to be there. And for mobile devices, a lot of those little bits of overhead can tend to add up. And with a CDN, that issue goes away. Yeah, because it's on a different host name. Yep. And so your browser doesn't package up the request with those cookies. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And again, a lot of these server-side changes, if it's not something that you're comfortable with doing, hire someone to do it, especially if you have your own VPS somewhere. Once the changes are made server-wide, it will affect all of the sites that uh, you then work on from there on out. All right, so that pretty well takes care of the server-side optimizations. What can we do to speed up our in-browser rendering? One thing that I wanted to add is, if at all possible, move away from putting a whole bunch of mod rewrite changes into your HT access file. I realize that that's a really easy way to do it, and on shared hosting, you have no choice. But if you look at the documentation for Apache, they basically say HT access files should be used as last resort because there are performance characteristics that you get burdened with by using them. Uh, every request is going to be a little bit slower. Are you saying we shouldn't use HT access at all, at all or just to set... It shouldn't be used. Like it shouldn't be used at all. Stuff. I mean, first of all, mod rewrite is a lot slower than mod redirect, and you know, for whatever reason, everyone seems to use mod rewrite anyway. But no, I, I'm saying don't use HT access files at all, and you can easily get away with doing that. The problem with HT access files is if you have allow overrides on, which is basically <laughs> saying look for an HT access file. Every time the web server goes to serve something up, it has to look. Right for the HT access file in that directory. And if it doesn't find it there, then it goes up the next directory and it looks. And then up, up, all the way up to server root. And it does that for every single request. And 99 times out of 100, there's no reason to have the HT access file at all. It all can be done in the, the server configuration file, which is loaded once, and it never has to traverse the directories to, to look for it. All of the websites that I have hosted on my VPS Allow overrides is off. There are no HT access files. Everything works great. Huh. Hmm. I guess I've never thought about that. I mean, I don't use Apache that much. I mostly uh, stick with Nginx and, and stick all my stuff in the yep. the vhost config. 
Nginx doesn't let you do that, and it doesn't let you do that for a reason. It wants to be a, a higher performance browsing experience. Huh. Well, all right, so no HT access for us. If you are on Apache, where then do you set the directive to send all your traffic to craft's index file? Every website that you have on your server has a configuration file that Apache reads in. And it's in there where you say, okay, this URL maps to this directory. And all of the directives that you have in HT Access can just be dumped into that file. I mean, it's really as simple as that. Inside of the directory directives, you dump them in there. Occasionally, there are minor changes, but most of them can just be copied and pasted in. You restart the web server, and away you go. That's it. Huh. All right. Yeah. So HT Access is forbidden. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing that it's going to make more of a difference on a high-performance site where you're getting just a ton of requests, but it also can save you money. You won't need a beefier server if you implement some of these best practices. And, there, you know, there's no reason to have uh, have Apache crawling up the directory of all of the files that you have on your web server every time a small GIF is loaded or every time a JavaScript is loaded or a page is loaded or anything like that. Yeah, that's a great point. Shave off the overhead. All right, so what about the in-browser rendering optimizations? What can we do to speed things up once our data makes its speedy way to the client? Yeah, so this is the kind of a, a topic that I find people think is somewhat controversial. And I think the reason is that it really requires that you change your workflow. You are not going to be able to do a, a lot of these optimizations if you are just editing stuff in Coda and then slapping them up on the server. You actually have to start using a workflow tool like Gulp or Grunt. And it's a, a leap that I find you know some people have taken and others are kind of reluctant to do it. What I can tell you is that the time that you spend learning them, you will save that time many times over, and you will also be able to make some, some really, really high-quality websites that perform awesome. What both of those tools are designed to do is to be task runners, and the reason Grunt is called Grunt is because it does the grunt work for you, you know, the kind of boring stuff that you don't really want to have to do every time. The overall philosophy of what Google and other people want you to be doing is when a web page is loaded, they want you to be able to render the entire above-the-fold content. And above-the-fold means what appears in the browser window, whether it's on a mobile device or on a, a desktop. They want you to be able to render that entire above-the-fold content in the single HTTP request. No external JavaScripts, no external uh, style sheets, they want to be able to render that immediately. And it makes sense if you think about it. Perceived speed is almost as important as actual speed. So the idea is that as soon as they hit the web page, you want it to immediately be visible and interactive uh, for them to work with. So let's talk about what it takes to actually accomplish that. So anyone who's listening to this who says, well, you know, how in the hell am I going to render the above-the-fold content? There's no CSS there. You know, I've got to wait for my site CSS to load. Well, what you do is you use something called critical CSS. And you can use this either on its own or via Gulp or Grunt, those workflow tools that I mentioned. And what it actually does is it takes your web page and it renders it in a headless browser. And then it scrapes it to see what is visible in the above-the-fold content. And then it tears the CSS attributes that are on that above-the-fold content and spits it out to you in a file. And what you then do with that file is you inline that file in your actual template, whether it's a Twig template or HTML file or whatever. And what happens is the browser loads the web page and it also gets just enough style sheets to render that above the fold content so that it's immediately visible and interactive for the user. So Critical CSS, the tool, figures out what style classes and, and selectors are part of the above-the-fold content and then allows you to inline the styles, the style rules that determine the presentation for those elements. Yep, that's exactly right. And I do it on a per-template basis. So for every template that I have, I have it rendering critical CSS for it. 
And this is something that some people get tripped up on, but if you think about it, the way that templates work, the data is going to be different. You know, say I've got a I've got a news blog. And yes, the data in terms of the news stories is going to be different from one blog one news blog post to the next, but the actual CSS that styles it is going to be the same. Um, so we can make one critical CSS per template, and it's going to be enough to get that web page to load in the single HTTP request without anything else having to be loaded. Curiously, in, in your experience, how big a chunk of style sheet is that that's, that's getting inlined? Um, it really depends on the web page and how let's say creative <laughs> the designers are have been getting with creating it but it will be anywhere from usually around 4k to up to 15 16k something like that well that's not too bad i mean i guess adding 4k or 10k or 20k to a file size still pales in comparison to the time it takes to spin up that second http request to grab the whole style sheet. Yep, there's that. There's the the overhead of, of spinning that up, and then there's just the latency that is needed when you go you bounce back and forth over the wire. And you know that's something that HTTP two is trying to address, keeping the connection open and and optimizing. And it will make some things better, but still the idea of being able to render all of the above the fold content in a single request is going to be a big deal from an interactivity point of view, you know, going forward. So if you're hoping that HTTP2 is going to rescue you from having to do any of this, well, I got bad news for you. It's probably not going to help. What about render blocking scripts and styles? That's a thing that Google PageSpeed complains about a lot. Mm -hmm. How do we avoid, what is render blocking scripts and styles, and, and how do we avoid that? Well, it, it, it gets back to exactly what we are just talking about, which is Google is saying, to render this above the fold content, I can't do it until this CSS file loads, or until this JavaScript loads. So again, what we're trying to do is avoid any of that. Have the CSS needed for the above the fold content inlined in the document via critical CSS, and load our JavaScript resources asynchronously so that we don't have to wait for those resources to load before the page actually can render. Uh, there are a number of different tools you can use for loading the uh, JavaScript async. I use RequireJS, which is a JavaScript library that uh, takes care of async loading, but it also does dependency management. So let's say you've got a JavaScript that depends on jQuery. It will make sure that jQuery is loaded and ready before your script loads and executes. And we talked briefly before about the inline CSS to render the above the fold content. Well, then what we do is we use a, a script called load CSS, or, or you can do it yourself, that what it does is it asynchronously loads your full site CSS. And what happens then is they load the page, it immediately renders because the CSS is there, and then the re request has already been made for the full site CSS, which will be there by the time they actually start interacting with it. And the nice thing about doing it this way, too, is you have one global site-wide CSS that can be pretty big. You know, 160K is not uncommon at all. And that will get cached by the browser. So when we go to a page, it immediately has what it needs to render the above-the-fold stuff. And then our full site CSS also will get cached locally as they go to subsequent pages. Does the, the full site CSS then is is duplicating what the browser already has yep. you know in terms of above the fold css so this is really going to make a difference the first time somebody hits your site yep they will they will have the perception that your site loads pretty much immediately because the above the fold content will get rendered with inline styles that that come down the pipe along with the html and then by the time they interact with anything or move to another page presumably the browser has had a chance to download the full CSS file and cache it. Yep. It definitely makes the biggest difference for the first-time visitor. And, you know, it makes just common sense that whenever you have a first-time customer in your store, you want them to have a good experience. So it makes sense that we want to make sure that the page loads very quickly for someone who is new to the site. The other thing to keep in mind is even though the browser has cached the CSS, that doesn't mean it is fully parsed and ready to go. 
So it still will make a qualitative difference even after you already have that CSS cached for the page. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because, it, you know, yes, it has this thing cached. It doesn't have to go out, out on the wire for it, but it has to set up a huge render tree in order to be able to then apply that to everything. So having a little minimal set of CSS to render the above-the-fold content immediately still makes a qualitative difference even after you've already cached that big site CSS. Okay. And that's kind of a, a general theme to all of this is that have stuff immediately available for the user to interact with and then load everything else asynchronously so it can kind of come in whenever it needs to and not block the web browser from doing the rendering that it wants to do. And something that we should really touch on for performance is images as well. One of the biggest things on the web these days are the images and videos that are being displayed on websites. Super, super important that you leverage things like uh, crafts, asset transformations to have images that are sized appropriate to each device. And, you know, there are, there are various uh, polyfills that you can be using for picture elements now, or you can just roll your own and, and do it however you want to do it. But it's super important that when I load your website on my iPhone or my Android phone, that I'm not getting a massive 1400 pixel wide or even 2800 pixel wide retina image that's meant to make the desktop look good. Um, and if there's a single thing that is going to make a huge difference in terms of people's experience with your site, it's to have your images properly optimized. And, you know, properly optimized means different size images for different CSS media query breakpoints. And it also means running your images through a tool like ImageMin that will reduce the size of the image because uh, there's a decent amount of cruft that is in some of these images that are saved out by various graphic designers that you can actually really make a difference. Uh, and think about it from this point of view. I've got a 200K image. Maybe I got five of them. I've got five 200K images on my website. If I manage to cut that size in half, we're talking about 500K versus 1,000K. Now multiply it by the thousands of people that are visiting your website. And it really can make a huge, huge yeah, difference. Yeah, that can make a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, well, and even just for one person, the difference between a megabyte of images and half a megabyte of images is quite a bit of time, especially if I'm sitting on a cell phone, maybe mm -hmm. I'm on a, a slow cell network. So you mentioned the picture element, which is gaining browser support, and there's there's polyfills for it and one of the things that the picture element gives us is the ability to do really nice source sets yep. so that we can serve an appropriately sized image to a different device do you use any kind of automation to generate your source sets or is that something that you just have to build into your template i i personally don't use any kind of automation for that i mean i use the crafts asset transformations to create properly sized images and then i run them through imagemen and then just in my css i apply that there are any number of valid techniques and valid ways that you can do this appropriately i think the important thing is just that you're doing it and it really does make a huge difference and kind of uh dovetailing with that or piggybacking off of that whichever <laughs> whichever idiom makes the most sense here I see a lot of websites that are using massive icon fonts, like Font yeah. Awesome. And I, I don't even know. I think Font Awesome, I think, is like 170K or something like that. And a lot of these sites, they're using it for like five icons. You know, maybe they've got three social icons that they use from it and then a couple of arrows. Um, there's no reason to do that. You can either use a tool like Fontello, which lets you choose any glyphs that you want from font awesome font as well as a whole number of other fonts and then it builds a custom font just for your website and it can make the difference you know I, i've had some websites go from loading a 200k font awesome font to something that's like 2k you know and that's right. that's going to make a big difference to mobile users uh, especially um, and you can also integrate fontello with gulp and grunt in that you can have it automatically generate the font file for you you know, if, yeah. if you want to add a particular icon, you just add it to the config file. It will uh, generate it and download the, the font custom built for you. So it really makes a whole lot of sense. You know, if we're spending all this time to design a site and make it look fantastic and we're spending some time on optimizing it, it's really not that big of a stretch to use a, a custom font. Or you can use SVGs for it. And the, the best way to do that is to have one 
kind of large SVG. And there are tools that will combine SVGs for you because you don't want to have 20 requests for these tiny little SVG files. You would prefer to have just one big request, get it all loaded, and just use it right there. But the, the, the key takeaway that I want people to remember is don't forget to optimize the icon fonts that you're using on your site as well. Yeah, well, the theme with, with images and, and icons is only send over the wire what you really need to yep. send over the wire for a particular device. I mean, if you want to talk low-hanging fruit, that definitely images and icons was the single biggest change that, that we made in our agency workflow when we started really focusing on performance and just paying very close attention to image sizing, image transformations, yep. image compression. We use we use Icomoon a ton. Really, really love the Icomoon tool, which is another icon SVG packager. Mm-hmm. Does the same same sort of thing, icon fonts and, and SVG sprite files. And just paying attention to our icon fonts and to our image sizes shaved off by far, mm-hmm. by an order of magnitude, the biggest chunk of file size and load time across all of our projects and it it didn't take that much effort just to make sure that we were appropriately sizing and compressing our images and making use of of source sets so that a mobile phone isn't trying to download a 2000 pixel wide masthead background image or or something like that only sending the browser what it needs was the biggest impact item for us yeah, for sure. And it, that's really what all of this is about. And the world is only going more mobile. I know any number of people that don't even have a computer. They've got a mobile phone and they do almost all of their work on that mobile phone or tablet. And it really makes sense that we optimize our, you know, it's not enough to just make a responsive design site so that it looks okay on a mobile device. It's really important that you make it perform well too, for the reasons we mentioned earlier. I mean, you're going to annoy your users and they're going to go somewhere else, whether that means lost sales or or customers that are using another service. It definitely is something that is backed up by the data as being incredibly important. Another thing going along with the fonts, I'm probably going to take some flack for this from Adobe, but avoid using Typekit. (laughs) It, It introduces a number of performance problems that, as far as I can tell, are not solvable using it. Instead, what I tend to do is I have all of the fonts that I use on the website. I make optimized versions of them using a font squirrel is one tool that will do it. And what you do is you upload your font there and you can set what font you want it to have the same metrics as. You know, let's say pick a common font like Arial for sans serif. And then it will generate uh, optimized versions of the fonts in several different formats. And the reason why that matters is the... uh, WOFF2 format is the newer format, but it's also much more efficient than the other ones that are out there. So it lets the browser choose what font format that it prefers. Then what I do is I have these fonts served via CDN because fonts are never changing. There's no point in in hosting them locally. And I use something called Font Face Observer, which is a way to simulate font events. What that means is Again, we want to be able to render our web page really quickly, and we want to be able to do that before any of these fonts load, because we don't want to give up our fantastic typography and not have our website look good, but we also do want to have our website render relatively quickly. So what happens is it will render the page using a you know, like a generic Arial or whatever font you want, and One of the system font families. A system font, a web-safe font that is available to everyone and is on their computer. And then Font Face Observer will tell us when these fonts have actually loaded. And what that lets us do is we apply a fonts loaded class to the body of the document, right? So let's say our H1, the generic style, is Arial 2.0M, right? We also have a style called dot fonts loaded h1 that has the font face of whatever beautiful typeface that we actually want to use. So when a font face observer tells us that font is actually loaded and ready to use, then it immediately renders it in that font. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and don't uh, services like Typekit and and Google Fonts 
uh, you know, I know Google Fonts has the Google Font Loader, which works with Google Fonts and with, with Typekit. Doesn't it have a similar concept where it'll add classes after the fonts are loaded? They have a similar concept, but the, the issue <laughs> with both of those is that they don't keep track of the fact that the font has already been downloaded and cached on the local web browser. So if you go to a web page that uses Typekit or the Google Fonts and you just keep, keep hitting reload, you'll see that flash of um, unstyled text. They call it a fout, right? Flash of unstyled text every time you reload the page. Because what it does is it renders it in the normal font, and then it goes through its, all its machinations of getting the font, making sure it's downloaded, making sure it's rendered, and then it flashes on the screen in the actual typeface. And what we do is, after our fonts have been downloaded, we set a cookie that says that the fonts are there, they're cached, and we immediately apply that class to the page so that mm. we don't run into that kind of issue at all. That makes sense. Yeah. And also, if you're using Typekit on your website, you will see any number of complaints from uh, Google PageSpeed Insights about it render blocking, and <laughs> I, I don't know why they haven't managed to sort it out yet, but... As far as I can tell, there's... Well, a... that's a complicated yes. rabbit hole with licensing and, yes. and rights management and all of that. Yep. Suffice to say, there may be times, depending on the designer and, and the situation, where you just can't get around needing a licensed font, but we, we would like to avoid it if we can. Right. We'd like to, to serve that stuff with our own copies of the fonts and, and yeah. uh, with something like Font Face Observer. Yep to subvert having to load it every time, if we can help it. Right, and it gets back to what you mentioned before, is we want to limit how much stuff we're actually having to send over the wire. And if the yeah. font is already downloaded, there's no reason to flash the web page and try to re-download it or re-parse it. Because again, mm -hmm. it's very similar to what we discussed about the CSS. There's a difference between it being cached and it actually being ready to render. And when you, when you add over the overhead of the script having to instantiate and it having to do all this stuff, it's just not going to give you the, or the user a really great experience. Right. Until we well, get real... With, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was, was going to say, until we get actual font events, which are, they're in the pipeline. Uh, yeah, that's is, in the spec. Yeah, it's in the spec. This is just a kind of uh, a way to get around it and make the experience good while we wait for that to actually come down the pike. Yeah, well, and luckily, you know, even with Google Fonts, uh, yeah, you can download all of the, the source font files from Google Fonts and, and host your own copies of them and, and transform and machinate them as you need to. I actually saw a really cool technique for storing fonts in local storage mm -hmm. once they're downloaded and serving them from local storage to, to speed up Google Font rendering, which might be another cool thing to, to look into. If the browser supports it. <laughs> Yeah, if the browser supports local storage. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I guess, you know, that that sort of um, begs the point with all of this stuff that all of this, we should be paying attention to progressively enhancing things mm -hmm. and, and to taking advantage of what modern browsers support in a way that still provides a good experience for the, the legacy browser clients. Yeah, and I want to say that this is a, a never-ending thing, right? I mean, the, the state right. of the art today is not what the state of the art is going to be, you know, even a year. And I think that a lot of this is more of a mentality issue than it is a technical issue. And that mentality is, I want to be using the best possible practices to deliver the best possible experience for people that are using my site. Yeah. And it also, you know, a point that I want to make sure that I am hammering home is that if doing all of this stuff, we're not just doing it to try and get a good score, right? We're trying to, to make things better. And we also can charge our clients more for doing this kind of work. It's not like if we deliver a site with all of these crazy optimizations that, wow, there's no way I can afford to, to do all that with the budget that's available. And that may be true for some projects, but I can tell you for sure that it also allows you to raise the rate that you are charging because you are producing a product that is objectively measurable as performing extremely well. And for some clients, that's incredibly important. Um, and a lot of these issues that I've discussed here are really workflow related. So the 
hump that you have to get over is start using a modern workflow and once you do uh, a lot of these performance characteristics kind of just naturally come with it yeah well and i think ultimately it's we'll say these best practices are all about constraints and performance budgeting and and limiting data over the wire and stuff like that but but really i see all of it as being about freedom mm-hmm. one you know if i start from the baseline of providing a really fast baseline experience to that mobile phone on a slow data network, and then I pay attention to progressively enhancing things from that point, then I can show that 5K broadband iMac, it's really, really high resolution image, and it's beautiful typekit font or whatever slow, painful thing it can handle to be a better experience for it as long as I am also starting from the point of providing a really good experience to the least of the, the clients and the least of the connections. Yeah, for sure. And now, now that I have my workflow to, to where I'm happy about it using a, you know, a, modern, a modern tool chain, it, it doesn't take me any longer to make a site that performs really well. Um, mm-hmm. I could put up a site that performs really well as quickly maybe even quicker, depending, as someone else might take to put up a site that performs terribly. And it's really about the best practices and your workflow. And once you have your workflow optimized, everything else just comes. Yeah. Well, and you know, going back to an earlier comment, I'm not sure it's it's fair to say that they're back-end guys, because I know that... That's what they told um, me! Uh, well, <laughs> I, think it, I, think it would be, I think it'd be more fair... I think it'd be more fair to say... They have very limited hours. That's true. And I, I think and, – and the reason I say that is because that's a, an issue that I see with our work in our agency mm-hmm. and with basically across the board with all of my peers who are all top-notch veteran developers. And it's, it's very common that we know a bunch of stuff that we're supposed to be doing. We understand the technology and the implications very well, and it just comes down to hours in the day. And if Brandon and Brad are deciding, hmm, should I make an improvement to craft the product or to craft the homepage, I think nine times out of 10, they're going to side with improving craft the product and and just allocating their hours that way. And so, so I'm sure that they were very grateful just to have your help to come in and take care of stuff that they knew they ought to be doing but just didn't have the hours in the day. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, obviously, any of those guys are <clears throat> capable of doing all this stuff, so I, I didn't mean to imply that at all, but they need to allocate their time and resources where it makes the most sense for them. And I don't know about you, but I would rather have Craft here, Craft 3 here sooner than them having a, you know, a shiny, well-performing website. So I 100% ag- sure. agree on that. But I think Well, and I would rather have Craft 3 be faster well, yeah, than have right. you know <laughs> Craft... <laughs> cms.com be faster but actually the most interesting thing that you listed out was talking about moving the craft releases over to a cdn and and you had mentioned that that was one of the things that was on their list that you helped them do and the reason that that interests me is we talked about moving static assets to a cdn as a front-end optimization but in this case that is also a a backend optimization because when I go into my craft control panel and I hit that auto update button, it has to hit that server to go grab a release. And so having that be geographically proximate to me may speed stuff up for me in terms of my, my backend processes like upgrading the CMS. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And it's more a matter of, I went in there and did an assessment of what they had. And one of the things on the list was they should be using a CDN. And Brad said, yeah, you know, I've been wanting to do that. Let's do it. And that's kind of how that went. And, for, I, I, yeah. I, and I think that's a really, a really interesting idea of a, a technique, a best practice that we associate with front-end optimization being really relevant to the speed of, of the actual functioning of, yeah. the, of the app itself. Well, I, I, look at it, at is, <clears throat> I look at it all <clears throat> as content delivery, right? And in this case, the content just happens to be their software. So whether yeah. it's a video or their software and an image, really all is, is content delivery. But the other thing is, and, and this is one of the primary things that I, I did for them, obviously they're capable of doing all this, 
but the time that it would take for them to figure out what all the best practices are and implement them and all that stuff is more time, as you mentioned, than they should be investing in doing this. So what I tried to do is give them a recipe so that for their next website, this is what they're going to replicate to do on it. You know, essentially giving them a jump start on best practices so that they have a roadmap of how to do their next website, whether it's craft commerce or fingers crossed, a plugin store, something like that, you know, but to give them a, a jump start on best practices and a recipe that they can then use for their next site. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a great place to close to kind of go back to, to what we said earlier, that it is an investment to, to sort of assemble your own, checklist of these best practices and the specific tools that you want to use to accomplish this stuff and and the implementations that make sense to you and and how your team works and how your designs work and and how your projects work Mm -hmm. it does take an investment but like any good investment once you take the time to really map out how all of this works in the contents of your own projects then at, at that point then you can sort of rubber stamp from project to project and replicate that roadmap that you have created for yourself and you know make tweaks and updates as you you continue to learn but it's less about you know a checklist for a project and more about a checklist for the way you think about projects and and how you architect things from from the ground up oh 100% and i'm fully convinced because i've been through this whole process that you will end up making better stuff not just from a technical point of view, but you will have more time if you implement some of these workflow changes to actually be focusing on the content and the design. And it's really like anything else. A lot of times from a programming point of view or just from a life point of view, it takes more effort to figure out what you should be doing than to actually do it. And I'm sure you've encountered this when you're programming stuff that, you know, actually sitting down to do the thing, once you know everything that needs to be done, is really pretty trivial. Uh, but assembling the knowledge of what you should be doing uh, is what can take some time. Uh, but it absolutely will, will pay off down the road. Yeah, and I, you know, I think it's, it's intimidating to a lot of people, myself included, once you have this checklist sitting in, in front of you. And it's, you know, it's the same for performance and SEO yep. and template development, all of these things. It can be an intimidating list just because you're staring at it, and it's a long list. And you just kind of got to tick off one thing at a time and make sure that as you hit a particular best practice in your current project that you track that right. then into your future projects and, and you just do one thing at a time. Yeah, and I'll tell you, this is it's really interesting that you raise that because I had forgotten about this, but it is really relevant to what you just said. What I was doing was I, I've got this long list of you know technologies or best practices that I want to check out. What I was doing was for every new project that I did, I made sure that I used one new thing in that project so that I could learn it and then do it. Um, for for yeah. instance, just one, just one, yeah. For instance, the you know some of the stuff that I did with you on the Craft Podcast uh, website, mm-hmm. that was the first time I'd done anything with with Gulp. Now I had always wanted to do something with Gulp. I've been using Grunt; it worked well enough for me. But next up on my list for the next website that I did anything with, I was going to do something with Gulp. And it just happened to be a happy coincidence that you're already using it. But that's a good way to kind of keep yourself up with the state of the art is try and pick one new thing that you're going to use for each new project. Because this is, again, this is a problem that's never going to end, right? Technology is going to keep changing and keep getting better. And if you don't keep your skill set up to date... The quality of the product that you make is going to go down relative to what other people are doing, and someone else is going to get the job, not you, at some point. Well, I would love for us to, to circle back and do a whole episode just talking about tooling up with you know, with Gulp or, or Grunt, and I think we could do an entire episode on you know revisiting performance in terms of template development. There's a bunch of stuff that oh, we yeah. weren't able to, to cover in the scope of this episode, but we've got gosh, just over an hour of pretty solid material. So I think we've done justice to to talking about performance, especially in the context of, of craft CMS sites. Tell us again where we can find you. You can find me at 
nystudio107.com or on Twitter at nystudio107. I'm not going to give you my physical address. Do not want you showing up at my door. Yeah, or just pop into <laughs> Slack and say anything, and probably you're the first person to respond. What are you trying to say? <laughs> I'm trying to say you're a fine, upstanding member of our community. I'm a lonely man. I need attention. What can I tell you? Well, thank you for joining me for this podcast, and I hope that you will join us again soon. It's been really cool to talk about all of this stuff with you. And, uh, yeah, now I'm just rambling. That's okay. It's the end of the podcast. Most people are dozing off, or they're looking out their window, yeah, they, or they're getting ready to go they've home. They've tuned out by now. No one's going to listen to this. <laughs> Not a chance. Um... <laughs> You can find the Craft Podcast online at craftpodcast.com. You can tweet us at craftpodcast, email us hello at craftpodcast.com, or find us in iTunes. And if you find us in iTunes and enjoy the show, we would really appreciate if you could leave us a review. Any review. Be honest. Tell us what you think. Give us your suggestions. We read everything that you send us. But it helps us a lot if you will give us a review in iTunes. Please do email us, get in touch with your questions, with suggestions for episodes. And until we see you next time, keep building awesome stuff. Bye-bye.